Well, good evening. Uh, my name's Rick, as you've heard. Welcome to Grace Church. Uh, if we've not met, do grab me after the meeting if you're not filling your face with donuts. Um, I'm married to the lovely Cheryl, and we have two small children. And uh, I had one of my major parenting wins this week when uh, deciding what record to listen to over dinner, uh, my three-year-old decided to forego the usual choice of the Frozen soundtrack and instead request Led Zeppelin's first album. <laughs> Which left me a little dazed and confused, but uh, yeah, someone got that was a Led Zeppelin joke. Great, well done. Should we get to the Bible? Probably should. We're going to be continuing our series in Hebrews. Uh, Last week, JP kicked us off um, with uh, looking at the supremacy of Jesus, how he is better than everything, which is actually what we've called our series, Jesus is Better, because it's one of the major themes of the book of Hebrews. And today's passage, uh, chapter 2, we're going to look at, is no exception. And uh, we are going to read the whole chapter, but it's quite long and winding, so I'm going to do it in chunks. Uh, So so bear with me as we go bit by bit. And I'm going to dive right in, because I've got a lot to cover, uh, and I'm going to start with Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. And uh, what I've asked Harry to do as well is is keep the words on the screen. If you've got a Bible, it'd be great if it's in front of you. Um, But there's a lot going on, and, and it'd be great to sort of follow along as I talk about it. So verse 1 of chapter 2 then. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord. And it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. And it's worth mentioning that the book of Hebrews isn't really a book at all. I mean, I know it's one of the 66 books we see in the Bible, but really when it was written, it was meant to be a preach. And, uh, and Hebrews is, is 13 chapters long. It has 303 verses in it and 6,913 words. And I preach at roughly 100 words a minute. So by my maths, that's an hour and 10 minute of preach. And I want you to remember that. When I get to the 25-minute mark and I'm making my final comments and you're starting to lose interest, maybe even consciousness... <laughs> Just remember, it could be worse. (laughs) But as it's a preach, it's unique in its structure. It's it's not a narrative, it's not a story that goes step by step. It's not a letter, like we see of Paul's letters, writing to churches. Rather, it's written to be heard. And it has uh, these very five singular moments that only turn up in this book. Uh, where the, the writer, or, or speaker, I guess, takes a little break from the flow of his argument, you know, this bit of theology, that bit of theology, and says, wake up! <laughs> Thank you, Callum. <laughs> Jumped out of his seat. <laughs> like that. Okay? It's <laughs> a mild heart attack happening in the corner. <laughs> and the, verses 1 to 4 are the first of these warning passages, as they're known. But what is it warning? What's it warning about? 
Well, actually, let's go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 1. It's not on the screen. I'll just read it out. And it says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. That's how he starts the letter, the preach. Then he rumbles on about angels for a bit. And then we get to chapter 2 and he says, wake up! I won't do that again. (laughs) Listen to what God has spoken. And as we encounter these warnings through the book, we'll see that this theme of God having spoken and us needing to listen carries through. The next one in chapter 3 says, Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. In chapter 5, the hearers of Hebrews are described as being dull of hearing. And this all culminates, the last one, chapter 12, verse 25, says, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God has spoken through Jesus. He's spoken a better word by his blood. Jesus is better than all sounds, all voices, and we need to listen to him. That's the thrust of the message of Hebrews. Jesus is better, let's pay attention. And each phase of the book develops this further. Each warning passage builds on the theology that's chatted around it. Here the writer has just been talking about angels, who in Jewish tradition at the time uh, were thought to have had a hand in delivering uh, the Ten Commandments, the law, to God's people which is the basis of his warning in verse 2. Got it on the screen there. I'm going to paraphrase. Angels are great, he says. And if they did play a part in bringing God's law to his people, well, whoop de do Because verse 3 says, this message, the message of Jesus Christ, the message of salvation, the message of reconciliation to the Father for everyone, this message was brought by God himself in the person of Jesus. And then, by his apostles, his witnesses, and then, if that wasn't enough, by God himself again, in verse 4. This time in the person of the Holy Spirit, showing signs and wonders. God has spoken, and we must listen. Why? Why? I mean feels a little irreverent to say, if God's going to speak, I should probably pay attention. But it's not, because actually the writer of Hebrews gives us the answer, so it's okay to ask. Verse 1 tells us why we should listen. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention, we must listen to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift away. The uh, imagery here, in its original language and context, is that of a a boat and a harbour. And uh, I grew up in Cornwall. In fact, I'm also from Brighton and Liverpool. I'm very coastal. Um, It's probably why I'm planting a church in Newcastle. Let's get back to the sea. Nottingham's terribly landlocked. But I particularly like, um, and there's lots of harbours in Cornwall, as you'd imagine, but there's one that I particularly like. We're going to put it on the screen. Uh, that's it. Yeah. 
That's mousel, um, which is spelled mouse hole. Uh, all right. <laughs> but it's so named because while the harbor itself, the, the basin, the, the water that you can there see a dragon in, but normally has boats, that's a decent size. But the gap through which the boats have to get into the harbor is very narrow, very small, hence mouse hole. It's just pronouncing Cornwall, Mosel. <laughs> and back when Mosel was a, a thriving fishing, fishing village, the whole village would be involved in, in the work of fishing. The boats would be out, taking a catch, and then back on land at the harbor walls, there would be the rest of the village with torches and fires lighting the way back to the harbor. And this was known as the Mausel Lights. And uh, these days, what we here, have here, because fishing has kind of gone out of the area and tourism's king, um, you now have an electric display of the same idea with a dragon. <laughs> Thanks, Harry. When we put our trust in Jesus, our course, our direction is totally changed. Where before we were lost at sea, tossed about by the waves of life, now God has set our prow to face the harbor with a promise of coming home to rest with him eternally. But the warning here is to not drift away. Don't miss the harbor. The book of Hebrews was uh, written to a, a group of Jews who'd become Christians. But somewhere in the slog of life, living out the cost of Jesus, they were tempted to drift away. And this is because, actually, I say slog of life, this was serious stuff. They'd, they'd stopped being Jews and they'd become Christians. Many of them, that meant, had lost their families. They'd been disowned. They'd lost trade opportunities, employment. Which I think is quite difficult for us to get our head around. Because broadly, if someone becomes a Christian in our country, someone goes, yeah, all right. It's a bit weird, but you do you. But I think, actually, we can see ourselves in the story. We've all had to pay a cost, one way or another, to follow Jesus. Maybe you grew up in the church, and then you came to uni and you had to make a decision. Am I going to follow the faith my parents brought me up in? Am I going to commit to the local church? Or am I going to spend time with the student union? Am I going to spend time doing all the activities that uni offers? Maybe some of you are making that choice at the moment. Maybe you became a Christian later, and you did have to pay a cost. You were in a relationship. And the other person didn't want to follow Jesus. Or it was inappropriate. And you had to lay that down to follow Jesus. There are some of us for whom actually this family ostracizing is not as distant as we like to think. Different religions. Be that you know, no belief at all which is a religion, or Islam, or, or whatever. 
We've all had to pay a cost. And we don't want to be like these guys who attempted to revert back to their previous Christian lives. Their previous Jewish lives, I should say. To drift off course, to miss the harbour. And this should unsettle us. It should. It should make us ask, am I going to miss the harbour? Am I going to miss out on heaven? And I'm going to leave that intention, actually. Because Hebrews doesn't answer it here. We've got a whole series to cover that. It's going to come up again. But the short answer is yes. Yes, of course you're going to make it to heaven. If you put your faith in Jesus, if you're a Christian, if you follow Jesus, then yes, you will. But, but, F.F. Bruce, one of the great commenters on this book, says that again and again in Hebrews, we must remember that continuance, that's going on with God, continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. Continuance is the test of reality. You want to know if your faith's real? Tell me in 10 years' time, 20 years' time, 30, 40, 50, 60, maybe some of you 70 years' time. Continuance is the test of reality. And I know that some of what I'm going to say now is a little bit beyond where you're at at the moment. You're just fighting the fight at the moment. Uh, can I still be a Christian? Can I make those costs? Well, do you know what? In some ways, the fight is easy. The slog is hard. Because you tell me, when you've bought your first home, you know, and you, you never had money before, and, and everything that you had, you zealously gave to the church, you gave to Jesus and his people. But now suddenly you've scrabbled together enough money for a, a deposit and you earn enough for a mortgage and, and all of a sudden you own something. But it's empty and you have to fill it with furniture so you start owning more things. And they're pretty bare so you start filling them with more stuff that you own. And all of a sudden you look at your money and go, oh, maybe it would be a good idea to hold back on my giving just a little bit. To make sure that if the house goes wrong, I've got a little bit of insurance. That I could buy more things. Continuance is a test of reality. Some of you may have children. Blow me. That's a test of your faith. Are you going to continue to spend time with God? Are you going to continue to pray and read your Bible when all of your time is squeezed? Even when they're, they're asleep, you're exhausted. Continuance is a test of reality. What about when your children leave home? One day, Lord. <laughs> what about when they go and you have an empty nest? Suddenly you've got money to travel. Retirement's in sight. But you're not there yet. And you're tired. Oh, you're so tired. And you know what? You don't have to go to church this week. The only proof of our faith in Jesus and his faithfulness to us is that we continue in our faith. 
which should lead us to ask the question, how? How do I continue? How do I follow the mausal lights and stay the course and land in eternal safe harbor? Well, this is the theme of our passage today. Let's read on, uh, verses 5 to 9. And uh, it's almost like the warning passage never happened because he picks up the theme right where he left it at the end of chapter 1. He's been banging on about angels. He talks about them all over again. Verse 5, For it wasn't to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking. It has been testified somewhere, and I love that. <laughs> you know, this is scripture, right? This guy got away with, I don't know which of these, Psalms 95? <laughs> you ever feel like you want to contribute and you don't know where it's from, you have permission from the writer of Hebrews. <laughs> You'll be fine. It's been testified somewhere. What is man that you're mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present... We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And in this passage, we've got a, a very familiar gospel narrative. If you're a Christian, you've been around church, you'll recognize this. Jesus descends below the status of heavenly beings to become a man. Yeah? He suffers death. Death for everyone, it says. And then is glorified, and everything is laid out in subjection to him. He's got everything under his control. Chapter 1, the end of it says, enemies are his footstool. And that's, that's the gospel of Jesus, yeah? God became man, became sin on a cross, defeating death by death, buried, resurrected, ascended, reigning in glory, and now everyone who believes in him gets to reign in life with him. Amen? Because uh, then, if that's true, why is life so hard? Why does every day feel like a fight? Why do we never quite have enough money to pay the bills? Why do our families never quite get on? Why do we feel like we have to strive to be noticed in our social circles, at church, at work, at uni? Well, it's because verse 5 says we're speaking of the world to come. Future hope. Jesus has defeated death. He's resurrected. He's glorious. And one day, everything will be subject to him. Evil will be destroyed, but that day has not come. Let's go back to the image of the boat and the harbor. Jesus is calling us home. The lights are lit. and We can see it at a distance, but we're not there yet. The still waters of the harbor are a sure and certain promise. Heaven awaits us. Hallelujah. And just like the fishing villages of old, when the boats came back, the whole place was involved in celebration and a great feast prepared. But we're not there yet. And this life, whether you know Jesus or not, is as one on a storm-tossed sea. Every day brings its challenges. 
And the Christian life isn't without trouble. In some ways, you even get more. The difference is that for those who follow Jesus, the lights in the harbour have been lit. And we're on our way home. There is future hope. But what about now? Let's read verse 10. For it was fitting that he, and by the way, some complicated grammar going on here, so I'm going to help us out. For it was fitting that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's us, should make the founder of their salvation, Jesus, perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies, that's Jesus, and those who are sanctified, that's us, all have one source, which is God the Father. That's why he, Jesus, isn't ashamed to call them brothers, isn't ashamed to call us brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I'll sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Here, the, the writer doesn't even pretend to know where those things are from, but there you go. <laughs> this passage tells us that Jesus is our brother and he stands with us which is great because even this future hope that we're promised could feel a little hopeless if we don't have assurance that we're going to make it home sure we could say you know that the lights are lit in the harbor but i've got to deal with the waves out here well my god is the god who rules the wind and the waves my God is Jesus who calms the storm, who walks on water, who splits the sea. If you were here last year, you'd have heard us preach through the Exodus narrative. And it's Exodus that's being inferred when the writer talks of God bringing many sons to glory. This word bringing here means leading or taking through, just as at the Red Sea, when the impossible happened, when the Spirit of God breathed on the waters and they rose in banks on either side and the people of God walked right through on dry land, just as that, in the same way, in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the impossible happened when the Spirit of God breathed on a virgin's womb and the Lord Jesus was conceived, the second person of the Trinity, the everlasting one, the bright star of heaven, God made man, who made a way through suffering for many sons to come to their Father in heaven. And because he became like us, so we can become like him. Verse 11 says, He who sanctifies Jesus and those who are sanctified, us, all have one source. We who believe in Jesus are now the children of God. His Father is now our Father. His status as the Son of God is now our status as sons and daughters of the Most High. And he... Jesus is our brother. In my family, I'm the eldest of uh, three boys, so I know about brothers, and we share an exclusive relationship. We're the only ones who know what it's like to have had my parents as parents, for good and for bad. The only ones who know what it was like to live in that house at that time to share those days. It's an exclusive relationship. 
And that's like the exclusive relationship we share with Jesus because he shares our days. I'm actually very different to my brothers in lots of ways. You know, we shared 20-odd years together, but I've had 14 since to shift a bit. But even still, no one knows what it's like to be me except me. Except Jesus, who knows everything about every one of us. He is the better big brother. Minus all the competition. You know, brothers fight. Yeah? Well, I didn't. They fought with each other. I was very much the peacemaker. But yet, when we were out, you know, at the swimming pool or something, and one of us got picked on, oh, no, we became a three-headed monster. You don't mess with the loose more boys. <laughs> no, thank you. We cared for one another. We taught one another. We fought for one another. That's just like Jesus. He cares for us, teaches us, fights for us. When Jesus made that impossible way to the Father... He welcomed us into his brotherhood, his fraternity, if you like. And he won't let go, because brothers hold fast. How do we stop from drifting off course and reach the harbor? By fixing our eyes on our future hope and by being found in the fraternity of Jesus. And lastly, by finding freedom from fear. Let's read the... 14 to 18. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. On the uh, panel show, would I, like, would I Lie to You, uh, David Mitchell was being interrogated by Charlie Brooker uh, about some house remodel or something, and he, uh, Charlie Brooker says to him, what's the most complex thing you do in your kitchen? And Mitchell smartly replies, worry about death? <laughs> Which is commonly gold, but it's, of course, at the very heart of what it is to be a human. And as we've seen, Jesus didn't shy away from that aspect of humanity. In fact, he embraced it fully, was dead and buried, and by that, turned it on its head. We read about death uh, entering humanity way back in Genesis, where the devil we've just read about leads man to sin, and death is sin's consequence. And from then on, that devil, as we've seen in the passage, is the one who has the power of death. And he's lorded it over us ever since. Because in death, when we die, if you don't know Jesus, you don't know that your safe harbor is waiting. And all that's left is fear and insecurity. And it's by this fear the devil enslaves us. Because all insecurity is rooted in fear, the fear of death. Yeah? I don't know how much we go around thinking about that, but say, I'm worried about money. Why? 
because money gives us security to, to buy food and clothes and, and shelter, the things we need for our health to ward off death. So that's the process. Like I said, we don't think like that. Oh, I'm short on money. Oh, I'm afraid I might die today. If you don't know what's going to happen to you when you die, then you fiercely hold on to earthly securities, things you can attain now, maybe not material stuff. So fears of loneliness, inadequacy, and embarrassment are real fears because relationships, achievement, and being well thought of are all that you have. And you can't take it with you until the cross, the devil, that tyrant, had humanity in his grasp in lifelong slavery. Captives to fear. But Isaiah, looking forward to the work of Jesus, prophesied this. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be released? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. He will save us. I will make your oppressors, that's the devil, I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your saviour and your redeemer, the mighty one of Jacob. Jesus said, if you want to plunder a strong man's house, first you have to bind the strong man. And on the cross, the power of death was broken and he who wielded that power was bound. And now... Jesus liberates the plunder of the enemy's house. Us. He sets us free. Perfect love casts out fear. We don't fear death anymore. Our peaceful harbor is waiting on the other side. Our deaths are just the narrow gate through which we have to pass. F.F. Bruce again comments, For Christ's brothers and sisters, his death means not judgment, but blessing. Not bondage, but liberation. And when we know that death can't touch us, what do we need to fear? What can the devil and his cronies do to us now? Next time you worry, you feel enslaved by fear, and the enemy comes with his filthy lies and said, you're no good at your job. No one's really going to like you. You'll only have less than you need. Well, ask the question. What's the worst that could happen? Seriously. That you die? It's now blessing. It's liberation. Can I encourage you? We've got a course starting on Wednesday. It's called Keys to Freedom. runs for several weeks. And it's all about this renewal of the mind. Thinking in new ways that helps us walk free. You can sign up for that online. But I do know that that's a little base. It's a little simple to say, oh, you know, you'll be all right when you die. Get over it today. Because the suffering we experience in this life is real. It's really real. It really hurts. But we have a still greater hope 
than just beating the devil at a game of logic. Verse 18 says, Because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus has been through everything you have. He has experienced every emotion, every pain, every disappointment, every confusion, every loss that you have, and he did not succumb to self-pity, disobedience, or any kind of drifting off course like a wave battered boat. He faithfully followed the path to Golgotha. And there he was pierced, he was mocked, he was lifted up on the cross. Without a word of complaint, he overcame every torment to pass through the gates of the harbor and is now crowned with glory and honor. And now, by his spirit, he empowers you to follow the same course. Continuance in the Christian life is the test of reality. And in Jesus, we have both the perfect example and the power by which we can continue. How do we stop from drifting off course? We invite and imitate the Lord Jesus in our lives. Chris. And I want to finish by just tying up a couple of loose ends. Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. We share the same Father. And in our Father's love, fear has no place. We don't fear death. The enemy can't threaten us with that anymore. But more than that, our Father, who art in heaven, every day gives us our daily bread. Fear has no place in the lives of the children of God. He will clothe us. He will feed us. He will meet us. He will guide us. He loves us. He is your good father. You do not need to fear. <laughs>